Chelsea Fairless. You okay, Chelsea? That was a little more monotone than Oh, was usual. it? I'm fine, yeah. Mentally, I'm hanging on by a thread, but I'm great. Same. It's really good to see you. I feel like this is going to be a manic episode for us. I can just feel the energy in the room, and it's um, it's a little unpredictable. So unpredictable that I'm almost wondering, should we do Kardashians first? Because I have so <laughs> many things to say about this new episode. Maybe not the whole segment, but let's talk about the season four premiere right off the bat. All right, let's play the theme. Kardashian-aholics anonymous. This is a case for the FBI. <laughs> okay. Lauren, you're a witch and I hate you. If you said to me that everyone else that I knew and you had a group thread that said not Lauren to talk about my decisions <laughs> in life, we would just have to not be friends i will say we are coming at this with a bit of a hindrance because we are both only children we don't understand one sibling dynamics let alone sister dynamics yeah we really don't know how to share we're developmentally stunted in a lot of ways i don't know but if it saves us from conversations like courtney and kim had and you know what i've slandered courtney in the past but i am so on her side with this one so for those who refuse to watch the kardashians but would love to know about the drama we were teased this fight between kim and courtney in the trailer and boy were we both shocked to see it at the top of the season four premiere they know what we want they almost start the episode twice because it's like uh we're all going to cabo and you're like okay typical kardashian episode they're driving their cars to the private jet which is a whole nother level and then it's like well courtney's not on this trip why and then it's like let's go back two days yeah courtney's whole thing was basically telling kim that you didn't have fun at my wedding you were upset that it wasn't about you and kim's response was so cruel it was basically just like if anything i was like i don't like this she said visually it was not my thing and when i designed my dolce and gabbana capsule collection i did everything in my power to not make it look like your wedding because your wedding was so ugly was the subtext for someone who wants to be a lawyer this was a terrible debate because Kim goes, I actually hated a bunch of things. I told Chloe about this at the wedding. And then <laughs> Courtney goes, yes, that's the problem. You weren't happy for me. And she goes, I was so happy for you. It's like, well, you sort of unwinded that point by your inability to not talk shit about your sister for just five days. And then Kim responds with, you think you have friends. But all of your friends actually come to me and my sisters complaining about you because you're such a nightmare. And it's so much of a thing that we've had to have a separate group chat titled Not Courtney, where we all talk shit about how crazy you are. And in addition to that, not only your friends, but your children. That was absolutely out of line it was so fucked up your children have come to me and complained about you so she's like so you're basically telling me that you were happy for me when I got married but also at the same time I have no friends my children are coming to you everyone is turned against me and that's when she says you're a fucking witch and I hate you and she hung up Courtney and Travis's PDA can be cringe 
But also, Courtney, who I've never really been a fan of, is clearly in a better place. Because it seems that really the core issue is that Courtney has moved away from the family, which to be fair, this is an argument that started between Courtney and Kim during some of the last seasons of Keeping Up with the Kardashians, which is the whole work ethic argument that descended into Courtney smacking the shit out of Kim and leaving an imprint of her foundation on the wall. My issue with Courtney is twofold. I continue to not understand why Dolce & Gabbana, while referenced during these fights, is not brought up for their role in it. Kim didn't go to Dolce & Gabbana and say, I want to do a collection with you guys. Dolce & Gabbana approached her. It's true. It's like when a woman that's been cheated on blames the other woman and not their man. Dolce & Gabbana. <laughs> is that man? <laughs> is that man. I do not understand why Courtney doesn't quit the show. At first, I thought this was just her storyline. Going back to Keeping Up, where she's like, I don't want to do this show anymore. And I was like, all right, that's her storyline, I guess, because she doesn't really have any drama with Scott anymore. But I now genuinely believe she doesn't want to be on this show, to which I say... Just leave. She's had that moment where she's realized, I am in the Truman Show. She should just jump ship. Her and Travis can have their own reality show, and they will. Again, maybe we're the fools. Maybe this is all just a ruse to set up the Barkers, the Kardashian Barkers reality show. It's actually genius when you think about it, because it's a combination of two incredibly successful reality shows which is the Osbournes and the Kardashians. During the era of the Osbournes, Travis Barker and Shayna Mokler had their own reality show in the vein of the Osbournes. Maybe I'm reading too much into this but it also feels like there is a deeper issue going on between the family that Courtney doesn't want to say on camera. Part of that is, you know, it's very sinister that our mother is the one that is brokering all of these deals and pitting us all against each other in this weird way. I haven't previously been on Courtney's side, and I've mentioned this on the podcast, because I just find with her argument there's a lack of deference. Going back to the, the work ethic fight on the previous show, Courtney was like, I just want to be with my kids, and I, don't, I basically don't want to work. And all, personally, me, not that she needs to make me happy, but what I want to hear from her is like, and thanks to this show, I don't have to do this anymore. So I'm getting off the hamster wheel. But four years on from this fight, where she said she didn't want to be on the show, she continues to be on the show. R Rob was like, I don't want to be on this show, left and hasn't come back in a decade. Yeah, we also haven't seen Caitlyn recently. To transition out of this... I would say, you know, the fight between Kim and Courtney was very high school, and you recently went back to high school. I did. Believe it or not, guys, not my high school, but Sierra Canyon, which we've definitely mentioned on the podcast before because this is where all the Kardashian children go and lots of children of celebrities go there. And my friend Henry is a teacher there, and he is teaching a film class for high school seniors, and he asked me friend of the pod Carly and our friend Jonathan to come and be like guest speakers for the class it was so cute I love educating the youth how did it go what did you talk about we talked about like who we were we talked about what movies we liked in high school 
I tried to explain the Heathers to Jawbreaker to Mean Girls pipeline because I figured that Mean Girls would be something that they've actually seen. And was the answer no? They've seen Mean Girls. They have further research to do, but... I feel like we may have scandalized them slightly because Carly shows up in like a pleated mini skirt like she's going back to high school herself. Yeah, like she's Megan Fox on the poster for Jennifer's Bodies. Yeah, and she's like, I write and make TV shows about sex and relationships and Jonathan basically looks like a Robert Maplethorpe photo. It is like explaining the plot of my own private Idaho. <laughs> To these 17-year-olds. But yeah, it was really fab. I did feel like the Jerry Blank of Sierra Canyon, though. I died because it was Hispanic Heritage Month. So all over the school, they had these posters plastered up of, like, Bad Bunny, but also Sada Ramirez. It was a real, like, they follow situation. Oh, Che Diaz will follow you forever. Although, Lauren, you're going to be shocked. So because it's, like, a really fancy private school, they have, like, very small class sizes. So I think there was, like maybe 18, 20 kids in the class. Only three of them knew what Sex in the City was. Not like I've watched it, like, what is this? Which was funny because me and Harley and Jonathan were like, wait, our entire personalities are based off of this show. What do you mean? Yeah, no, I've looked at our analytics, so I'm well aware that Gen Z is unaware of the existence of Sex in the City. That was my fuck I'm old moment, but very cute overall. In other news, the writer's strike is over. After nearly 150 days and just in time for Yom Kippur, the AMPTP and the Writers Guild reached a tentative deal although it's been ratified at this point. Details still coming out, but it would appear the WGA got the AI guardrails, residuals, and data transparency for writers that they were seeking. So what does this mean for you, Chelsea? Our parents are going to be able to watch Bill Maher again. That's what it means for me. In the immediate late night talk shows, we'll be coming back with their writers. Daytime talk shows can safely air episodes without scabbing. And yes, sadly, Saturday Night Live will be back. I think just an update of what we talked about last week it is very sad, and we're not the first ones to, to make this point, but that Drew Barrymore tarnished her whole reputation, and they made a deal a week later. But ultimately, this is such a good thing. Unions work, power to the people, all of that. But I do want to extend my deepest sympathies to managers and agents who are now going to have to be on the receiving end of five months worth of spec scripts, which sounds like an actual nightmare. So prayers to all of them. Yeah, I don't know if anyone wrote during this. <laughs> I think it was just like like the pandemic, just an extended vacation. But I feel like we should discuss the fact that it really is a tale of two Drews. On the one side, you have Drew Barrymore, and then on the other side, you have Drew Carey, who has, for the last five months, underwritten meals for WGA members at Bob's Big Boy and Swingers to the tune of nearly a million dollars. You know what? I knew I loved Drew Carey. Have never watched him host The Price is Right, but I do respect the Drew Carey show. It should be noted that SAG-AFTRA is still on strike, uh, although they will be sitting down on Monday with the AMPTP. So what does this mean for us content whores? It means that the writing staff of, say, Law & Order SVU can come back, but they won't be shooting new episodes anytime soon. You think they're going to do a rip from the headlines based on the, on the union strikes? <laughs> yeah, except someone gets raped and murdered. I mean, why not? Also, the Golden Globes added two new categories. 
to next year's broadcast. It would be the best cinematic and box office achievement in motion pictures and best stand-up comedian on television. Stand-up comedy, that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's just a further acknowledgement that we are all streaming content monsters in this in this year, 2023, and we would rather watch John Mulaney's comedy special from 2018 for the fifth time than ever attempt to watch The Irishman. That's true. But wait, what was the best blockbuster category actually called? Best cinematic and box office achievement in motion pictures. Why can't they just call it best movie that's too shitty to be nominated for best picture but grossed over $100 million? This more makes sense for the Oscars. In their own way, they tried to do this by making the best picture nominees go from 5 to 10. The Golden Globes has notoriously always been concerned about getting A-list celebrities to show up for the award show. And I feel like the most blatant attempt at this is when they nominated Angelina Jolie and Johnny Depp for Best Comedic Actor and Actress for the Notoriously Bad The Tourist. It makes sense seeing that Hollywood is primarily making IP sequels and reboots. It's just a funny year for them to introduce this award because this is the year that the biggest box office achievement is likely the awards bait film of the year, which is Oppenheimer. I feel like if anything, it's about adding a best ensemble category. Yeah, taking the categories that work for SAG and putting them in the Golden Globes. Or it's just like there's a retroactive Golden Globe. That would be another thing that I think could attract a lot of press and if they just gave an award to something that didn't get one and deserved to a do-over yeah exactly the oscars also like the fact that they don't have like a casting category among all the technical categories is like really insane they should also have ensemble can't wait to watch i think the golden globes are officially uncanceled now i can't wait i love the golden globes And speaking of the Golden Globes, I really hope that this next film is going to be a top contender, which we've talked about it before extensively, even though the trailer only dropped this week. But I am, of course, talking about Todd Haynes' new film, May, December. Wow. For the people who say that we hate everything, this is something we very much love. We love it so much, in fact, that it's already our favorite film and it hasn't come out yet. It's like Tar all over again. (laughs) Well, you didn't like Tar, but I love Tar. So we finally get the trailer for this movie where... Julianne Moore basically plays Mary Kay Letourneau and Natalie Portman plays this famous actress that is shadowing her who is going to play her in an upcoming film. What did you think of the lisp that Julianne Moore has? It is God tier. <laughs> the darkness really crept in when I saw certain scenes that were in this trailer. Like the part where Julianne Moore and her husband, who was a child at the time that they started quote-unquote dating. Played by Riverdale actor Charles Melton. Natalie Portman's like, so when did you guys meet? And Julianne Moore's like, oh, he came to the pet store looking for a job the summer after seventh grade. I think our shit, like where we align, is there something about auteur directors dealing with gossipy material like To Die For, like this? This feels like some combination of Persona and To Die For, which is like, really, what more could I ask for in a film? Also, I was thrilled that... There's parts of this trailer where you see the sort of old tabloids from the 90s with Julianne Moore's character, and they gave her Mary Kay Letourneau's haircut, which I didn't anticipate. Like, I didn't think it would be so close to the source material, but clearly it is. It will be in select theaters in the United States. I'm going to assume that means Los Angeles on November 17th, 2023. 
Chell, do you have any plans that day? Because if so, cancel them. Absolutely not. There is nothing I would rather do. I can't even fathom a world where I could even wait until December 1st, which is when it comes out on Netflix. Shall we talk about what's going on with Taylor Swift these days? Yeah, what's going on with your goddess? Well, she's dating this football player guy. Or is she? Or is she? I don't know. His name is Travis Kelsey. I love that on Sunday, millions of us learned that stadiums are used for other purposes than Beyonce and Taylor Swift concerts. This thing called football is also played to them. But actually, when I think about it, it's like maybe it's good that they have that in common. Like they both know what it's like for an entire stadium of people to cheer for them. And like who could relate to that? What normal person could relate to that? Yeah, I don't know if they're legit together or this is just something that Dumois brought into existence because this is where I first saw the rumor start a few weeks ago. And it reminded me of the story, maybe it's apocryphal, but how Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin met, which is he invited her to a concert after Tabloid said they they were dating even though they had never met and then they fell in love. That's cute. He seems like a nice guy, I appreciate a Tom of Finland body type as much as the next girl, but like a football player? What better way to get over your era of British dick than an American football player? Yeah. He's 6'5", Chelsea. 6'5". Whatever. I'm happy for her. I just want her to be happy, whatever form that takes. So she was in his stadium box during the game. She left in his 1970s convertible. She evidently paid for everyone's meal at a restaurant if they would leave immediately. Wait, was that where the seemingly ranch thing happened? For those of you who haven't heard of this, there was a viral... Everyone's heard of this. Do I? No, I'm laughing because it's like, for those of you who don't have a chronically online addiction you probably don't know that taylor swift was sitting in the stadium travis kelsey stadium box someone asked to take a photo with her and on the table there was a plate (laughs) that had a singular chicken tender ketchup seemingly seemingly ranch whomever tweeted that out that went viral so viral that i don't know if you saw this but the other night the empire state building lights were red and white in honor of seemingly ranch how Can you not lose your mind when you go to a football game and yes, you know you're going to get attention, but three days later, the Empire State Building's lights are coordinating for something you ate randomly. Heinz is producing ketchup and seemingly ranch. She didn't even mix them together. (laughs) Well, they've mixed them together. And you know what? Not a half bad idea. Woodbye. We should also talk about the whole Sophie Turner thing. Maybe a week ago, Taylor was photographed leaving Via Corota with, wait, is it Nick or Joe's? Sophie Turner, the soon-to-be ex-wife of Taylor's former ex-boyfriend, Joe Jonas. See, to me, this woman exists in the overlap of the Venn diagram of two things that I just don't understand, which is the Jonas Brothers and Game of Thrones. Like, both of these things were hugely important, but they both just completely passed me by. Even though we are pop culture obsessives, we do have our own version of pop culture deserts, and that is one of them for sure, because we were too old to be into the Jonas Brothers. For all of the nerd shit that I love, there's something about fantasy medieval stuff that I just can't engage in at all. Right, it's not your, like, particular kink. So everyone thought that it was such a power move for Taylor to be photographed with Sophie Turner, and 
then it turns out the next day, Turner was seemingly in New York because she had to file a lawsuit to get custody of her children back from Joe Jonas, who she said was withholding the children's passports. They seemingly had a blowout fight on his 34th birthday, and she only learned of the divorce from TMZ. Turner was photographed leaving Taylor Swift's apartment with her children, so it would seem that Taylor Swift has offered Sophie Turner and her family refuge at this trying time. That all seems very dark. I do not care about Joe Jonas. I do not care about Sophie Turner. I mean, I wish her the best, but I do love a bungled PR strategy and Joe Jonas's attempt to ruin Sophie Turner's reputation by saying for the past two weeks that she's some partying mom who shirked her responsibilities of motherhood just blew up so spectacularly in his face. And I saw this tweet that showed Sophie Turner leaving Taylor Swift's apartment with her child. And then it was just a quote tweet that said, Joe Jonas on Caller Daddy in three, two, one. I can see that. That wouldn't be the worst strategy for him. But look, I, for the kid's sake, I hope they're able to resolve this because it seems really dark and depraved. But in other Taylor Swift news, this is maybe the story that I actually care about. Don't care about Travis Kelsey. Don't care about Sophie Turner. I do care about this beef with Olivia Rodrigo. Is it invented by the internet? I don't think it's invented by the internet. Basically what happened was on Olivia Rodrigo's first album, Sour, when it was released, there was one song called One Step Forward, Three Steps Back that Taylor Swift had a writing credit on because this song featured an interpolation of a chord from the Taylor Swift song, New Year's Day. And that was, you know, cleared with Taylor, approved before the album was released. After it was released, a second Taylor Swift credit was added to the song Deja Vu because the bridge in Deja Vu was very similar to the bridge in the Taylor Swift song, Cruel Summer. This kind of plagued Olivia Rodrigo with this first album because I think she had to add credits for Paramore, and Taylor Swift. In the case of Deja Vu, it wasn't just Taylor's credit that was added. It was Jack Antonoff and it was St. Vincent because they all wrote that song together. And because of this, those three people are entitled to 50% of the royalties from that song, which was her second single. So for a new artist that only has one album, that is kind of a big deal and a big financial hit to take. And the rumor is, is that Taylor Swift threatened to sue her over this. I don't think we'll ever get in a lawsuit with Taylor Swift, but that is someone I do not want to get in legal actions. No, absolutely <laughs> not. Well, and if you listen to these two bridges back to back, obviously Deja Vu is inspired by Cruel Summer, but having listened to Cruel Summer a hundred times, when I heard Deja Vu, I wasn't like, this is plagiarism. But basically, this is a long-winded way of saying that Olivia Rodrigo's new album just came out and on it are two songs that are rumored to be about Taylor and I just feel so fucking bad for her. She's clearly so traumatized by this because imagine being a teenage girl. She would have been 18 when this happened. Her hero is Taylor Swift. Imagine Taylor Swift like threatening to take you to court, basically calling you a piece of shit 
You know what I mean? Like if Madonna had come for me at the height of my fandom, I would still be in therapy today. I wasn't sure when you said I feel bad for her, given your love of Taylor Swift, if you were referring to her or Olivia Rodrigo. Well, I also, I also really, really love Olivia Rodrigo and I love her new album. And you know, being an Olivia Rodrigo stan that is pushing 40 is very awkward, but I just want to come out and, you know, be visible um, in the hopes that others will feel empowered to live their truth. Wow, you're so brave, Chelsea. <laughs> I looked at the lyrics for each of these songs. So one is called The Grudge, the other one's called Lacey, and I will say it could be interpreted to be about Taylor, especially The Grudge, or a bad breakup. Well, Lacey is obviously about a woman. She makes references that invoke visuals of, at the very least, a white blonde woman. I mean, would you say that Taylor Swift is Bridget Bardot reincarnate? I don't think it's the craziest way to describe her, especially when you consider those updos that she was doing in the folklore era, like right. when she went to the Grammys and stuff. Like, that was kind of the Taylor Swift version of Brigitte Bardot, but the grudge is a little more damning, the lyrics in that song, which I think is amazing. I have nightmares each week about that Friday in May, one call from you and my entire world was changed. Sour, her first album, came out in May, and the Taylor Swift credit was added to Deja Vu, Fuck Off Lauren. <laughs> Sorry, guys, I'm laughing. Chelsea, have in you July, <laughs> have you been a down a reddit k-hole about this or did you do your own research i have not been down a, a reddit k-hole but if anyone else listening loves olivia rodrigo and is interested in this drama i highly recommend listening to there's a couple of episodes of the podcast popcast that are devoted to this which is a new york times podcast that's really fabulous i will link to that in the show notes for those of you who just want to go in deep and want to hear actual music critics talk about this record. But I just feel bad for her. I just want to give her a hug. And if I was Taylor, I would like course correct. I would send her like the kind of flowers that Travis Scott sends to Kylie Jenner, where it's like a literal like installation in her house. Oh, also, lastly, in Taylor Swift news, the 1989 reissue is coming out, and there is a song on it called Slut. Slut with an exclamation point. Is Taylor Swift in her slut era? I feel like this is going to be another one of her feminism bangers, like The Man. I don't know. There's this niche criticism of Taylor Swift, which is that her feminism is too basic. But, like, I feel like Taylor Swift's music, like, these kind of songs, there aren't for people who, like, know who Audre Lorde is. They're for right. people that have literally, like... Never heard anyone make the argument that like when a girl has sex, she's a slut. But when a guy has sex, like he's respected. Can I say something that's slightly controversial? What? I think Olivia Rodrigo is a better lyricist than Taylor. I think she's an incredible lyricist. I don't know about better than Taylor, but certainly better than Taylor this early on in her career. Absolutely. I'm waiting for one of these Gen Z songstresses to discover trip hop so that I can get the 2023 equivalent of Sneaker Pimp 6 Underground. <laughs> I really need this to happen. Olivia could go there because her music, I mean, it is pop music, but it's closer to, I guess, rock music that we grew up with in the 90s where the vocalist had a very intentionally girly and bratty voice in the way that the lead singer of Veruca Salt did, or like Kathleen Hanna, like that kind of thing. Like the Breeders even. Her music currently exists in, in our elder millennial <laughs> terms, in that sort of post-punk, post-ska pop 
music trifecta, like a save Ferris. I think I said something to this effect when we talked about her first album, but it still reminds me of Lindsay Lohan's band from the Freaky Friday remake. Right. But if that band was actually brilliant. But good. Not that their one single wasn't good. It was. I just didn't hear that much from them. You know, we've, we haven't we yet gotten Freaky Friday 2. I wonder if Olivia Rodrigo grew up on the Josie and the Pussycats film. Very letters to Cleo adjacent. I just need her to get Portis head adjacent. <laughs> Look, if Taylor Swift keeps suing her, she might get there. <laughs> no, no, no. Olivia Rodrigo just becomes Cocteau twins. You can't like, <laughs> good luck trying to sue me. You can't understand any of these lyrics. Look, we really don't know what kind of artist she's going to become at this point. And I think that's part of the fun. Anyway, enough about my favorite 20-year-old. Shall we get into... Ooh. So... I did not watch the Republican debate last night, but you watched at least part of it. I watched the first debate, so I feel like I know who I'm dealing with. Same. I watched most of the first debate and about the back half of this debate, which took place at the Reagan Library, which exists technically in Los Angeles County. A place called Simi Valley off a freeway called the 118. (laughs) So for those of you who don't live in the United States, we have an election coming up in 2024 and the Republican candidates are currently campaigning in advance of our primary election. So we have all these public debates where they're facing off on all of the tough issues. There is a weird tension going on this election cycle where it's typical for the opposition party to have primaries with multiple candidates. I will say what's less typical is that they're having a primary, but then the likely candidate is just not participating and is currently under several indictments who would be Donald Trump. But what do we think about their fashion? Enough about their potential crimes against humanity. What about their crimes against fashion? (laughs) So I watched the first Republican debate and they literally were all wearing the same outfit. And that was pretty much true last night as well, because the uniform for Republican candidate is a navy blue suit, white button down shirt and a red tie. But Nikki Haley being a woman and not a particularly androgynous woman did not wear that. She wore like a, what looked like a red silk, like Shantung shirt dress of some kind. It was giving Sarah Palin drag for sure. But I did kind of respect that Tim Scott switched it up a little bit. He didn't just do the red dye. He did a red and blue striped tie, which I feel like set him apart from the pack a little bit. I mean, they're all so hopeless. Debates are so unbelievably stupid because they all talk over each other anyway and they're all so embarrassing and this goes for democrats doing debates as well where they'll go excuse me excuse me can i talk i haven't talked in a while can i talk well also this is especially embarrassing because there are candidates that are you know sort of coming out against trump and then there are candidates that are just want to keep their options open around like could i be the vice presidential nominee because we know it's not going to be mike pence again Mike Pence, of course, our former vice president who looks like Eminem post-twink death. Enough about what they wore at the debate. Can we get into the merch that they're selling? We looked at all the Republican merch and, you know, some are stronger than others. Who shall we start with? Ron DeSanctimonious, as Trump would call him. Okay, this wasn't the worst merch I've ever seen. I feel like he had a few good items in there. I particularly liked the baby onesie that says Joe Biden makes me cry. Okay, interesting, because I look at that and I go, don't put that on a baby. (laughs) 
Babies have no concept of time, let alone the geopolitical landscape. Also, babies cry regardless. It has little to do with Joe Biden's policies. <laughs> no, it's so true. Also, I love that he had like a sweatshirt. The back of it says where the woke goes to die. And then there's like a an illustration of an alligator, which is, of course, a nod to his native Florida. Decent design, terrible messaging. I don't know if the MAGA base wants to wear anything with the word woke on it, even if its meaning is to own the libs. True, but I feel like half of the Republican candidates have a lot of anti-woke merch specifically. I also love that Ron DeSantis is selling whiskey glasses that say, we the people are not destined to fail, which is a reference to the U.S. Constitution, the we the people part. But the whole vibe feels very Barry's boot camp. (laughs) Yeah. Do you remember that terrible restaurant we went to in San Francisco after we did one of our book talks and the entire theme? Yeah, you're getting very (laughs) depressed. You're dissociating. The entire decor theme of this restaurant was around the word believe, but it was very clear that they just looked up wiki quotes for believe because it was just the most random assortment of celebrity quotes all around this restaurant. That that was crazy, but I was kind of into it, though. Ron does get points for the mom merch. He has a hat that says Proud Mama and then Mamas for DeSantis on the back, which everyone goes after the dads. It's true, but he's really aping Kris Jenner with that one. Nikki Haley, very different vibe. Her merch really capitalizes on her gender. Like a lot of these women for Nikki shirts and stuff, it it has the same energy as the branding for Curves. Female Republican candidates are just dark to begin with, and Republican merch for women is even darker. It has literal Margaret Thatcher quotes on it. Yeah, so when you combine those things, you get the Nikki Haley presidential merch. (laughs) I don't quite understand the quote on the back of the women for Nikki shirts. If you want something said, ask a man. If you want something done, ask a woman. By the great Margaret Thatcher. And by the great, I mean, fuck that bitch, but whatever. I would look at the back of that in line at Ralph's or something and just spend the entire time being like, wait, hold on. Well, both women and men talk. Oh, I get it. This tragic hot pink v-neck cotton poly blend nightmare is not going to look good on anyone. Also, I like that she has some merch that is themed around the concept of her being past her prime, which is her clapping back at Don Lemon for saying that she was past her prime, which is what got him fired from CNN ultimately. What a way to go. Yeah, it's on a pint glass and it says, past my prime on the other side, hold my beer. You have to be able to want to drink a beer with this girl, you know? I will say the Nikki Haley 24 is giving Gore Clinton 96 vibes and I don't know if she, if that was intentional. Probably not. Okay, but you know what it's actually giving though? This is a logo flip from Reagan and Bush's 1984 campaign. How do I know that? Because an acquaintance of mine recently posted a photo of themselves in that shirt on Instagram to my horror. So I've been thinking about it a lot. And of course, Nikki Haley has a shirt that says strong and proud, not weak and woke. Anti-woke messaging is kind of just like the easiest and most succinct way for them to explain like the kind of person they are to like the average passerby. Anyway, Tim Scott. I get from this merch that Tim Scott is into Jesus. 
That's his whole brand. It's very like, I love a sans serif typeface, and I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. However, I will say the vote pin with the T as a cross is neither successful as a cross or a T. I don't know. I kind of thought that wasn't terrible design. I will commend him for creating general religious merch, like the shirt that just says faith on it. Yeah, that's funny, because I feel like if you paired that with like a baggy black jean or something, you could look like a member of the Smashing Pumpkins or something. <laughs> yeah, what did you think of the clever wordplay of optimism? Yeah, that's the thing about a lot of these candidates. They're really into bad puns. Optimism just seems like too much of a socialist ethos. Well, he definitely doesn't have that. Shall we talk about a high point of the Republican merch, which shockingly is Mike Pence? I hate to say it, but Mike Pence's logo is really great. And if he wasn't an evangelical Christian with the moral compass of Darth Vader, I might actually wear some of this stuff. Although I will say the recent Call Her Daddy rebrand looks disturbingly similar to Mike Pence's <laughs> logo. Does it? But I am also into it. He's going for a very late 70s, early 80s Ronald Reagan vibe. And that's a good fit for him. I feel like with this logo he's sort of bringing us back to the basics like small government low taxes forced births like that vibe calling your wife mother <laughs> yeah the shirt that has the two honest in quotes is such a millennially focused font that it almost seems like a quote the new yorker would have given for a lena dunham book what did you think of the I Like Mike hat? Because I get that it's referencing the famous Dwight Eisenhower campaign slogan. Yes, but they put it on a trucker hat. Look, they have to have something that appeals to the MAGA crowd. And I feel like a trucker hat says man. I don't think anyone likes Mike Pence. He's just there. That's the basis of his appeal. And it's awkward having him be there. And it feels sad that he's there. Like I'm almost sad for him, especially because of the company that he's in. Just have more self-respect. Sit this one out, Mike. And then we have Vivek Ramaswamy. I would say that Vivek's merch is the most confusing. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of disparate messaging happening within this collection. Yeah, he's the disruptor candidate, kind of like a Republican Andrew Yang. And similarly, all of his merch has a tech bro logic to it, which is to say that it doesn't have any logic to it. Well, a lot of his stuff just says truth on it, whether it's hats, t-shirts on the front. But I think the truth t-shirt is perhaps the most fascinating part of this collection because it says truth on the front. And the back says all of these truths that he's identified. Before you read them, I had to... God damn it. Guys, we really go above and beyond for you guys. I had to go to the truth section on his website because none of these websites allow you to zoom in. So I couldn't exactly read all of the truths. I couldn't either. Oh, I'll fill you in on the ones you missed. Re okay, read them all. God is real. There are two genders. Human flourishing requires fossil fuels. Little wordy. An open border is no border. Parents determine the education of their children. The nuclear family is the greatest form of governance known to mankind. Capitalism lifts people up from poverty. There are three branches of the U.S. government, not four. The U.S. Constitution is the strongest guarantor of freedoms in history. I tried to look this up, and by trying to look it up, I just wondered if I could click on and get more information from Vivek. But I don't understand that there are three branches of the U.S. government, not four. 
I don't know what Republicans consider the fourth branch. I don't either. I also don't get how human flourishing requires fossil fuels. I don't understand why just random average people are so anti-climate change. Like, I get that, like, if you ignore climate change, you don't have to have that sort of underlying anxiety about, like, a climate apocalypse. But unless you're directly profiting from the fossil fuel industry, like, why would you give a shit? I think he just wants that industry's money to back him, which is never going to happen, which is what makes his victorious shirt incredibly embarrassing. Yeah, that's another bad Carrie Bradshaw pun. Because it barely makes sense, and it's very clear he's not even going to get the nomination, let alone win the presidency. So it's just... An embarrassing buy. It's like buying a Hillary 2008 sticker or something. Also, he has a shirt that says defeat the deep state. I feel like the Republican Party should probably have a candidate that speaks to the Pizzagate segment of the party. And he is definitely that. So his merch is definitely more extreme. That piece of merch is the closest to Alex Jones Infowars merch, which we've previously said, while we don't agree with anything Alex Jones says, Unfortunately, pretty good merch. Yeah, looks better than it should. Vivek is seemingly the only candidate that is selling membership cards, which is such a genius grift. It's literally just a credit card. It doesn't get you in anywhere. It is personalized with your name. It really has no discernible function. It's kind of like as useful as my Madonna fan club card from the 90s. Yeah, but that's way cooler than this. Frankly, I'm just shocked that this isn't something that Trump sells. Which, speaking of which... Okay, can we get into his merch? Because considering he's the Republican frontrunner, I don't know why his merch is this shitty. Like, everything looks like it was designed by a tween on Zazzle. Trump's merch looks like bootleg merch for Trump and for that reason I think it's kind of brilliant well because I guess it's very anti-design in that sense which I I can see the positives in that especially in the mugshot stuff which actually is pretty smart but he's yet to create a product that has really recaptured the magic of the MAGA hat I'm also a little confused about the plethora of fake Shepherd Fairy Obama Hope style <laughs> portraits. It's like truly like so bad. And like why and for who? Because I'm pretty sure if Trump knew the reference, I don't think he would allow it to be sold on his website. It feels like something that you're right would be sold on Etsy or Zazzle. To me, the craziest Trump merch is the Crooked Joe shirt, which is a photo of Joe and Hunter Biden, but in the style of Reservoir Dogs? Okay, I was going to say, this shirt is the most St. Mark's looking shirt. I <laughs> I qualified it as those St. Mark's shirts that have every movie and television gangster, where it's like Joe Pesci from Goodfellas, Tony Soprano. No, this is literally the typeface from Reservoir Dogs, and I don't know if they were wearing sunglasses or if they were photoshopped on, but it kind of doesn't really work from a design standpoint because it actually makes Joe Biden and Hunter Biden look pretty cool. And again, I say I don't think MAGA people want to wear Biden's visage. To me, Trump's most memeable moment of the last few months was when he said, I did everything right and they indicted me. <laughs> this seems like the perfect shirt and 
kind of better than the Trump was right about everything shirt, which seems to be another theme throughout the stuff that he sells on his website. Very Zazzle. And um, tragically, guys, Chris Christie doesn't have merch. Chelsea is available, Mr. Christie. <laughs> what does it just say? Like, Donald Trump did not win the election. Chris Christie for president. <laughs> not the worst idea. I promise not to fuck up the GW bridge again, Chris Christie. Oh, God. This is like the most chaotic episode. I know you called it in the beginning, but just the transitions we have to make from topic to topic. We're on a less dark topic now. Or are we? No, we are. So we have to, of course, talk about the Supermodels docuseries that is now on Apple TV+. You know, Apple TV just has to make sure once a quarter they justify why we're paying whatever we're paying for this app. I love that Apple will make a four-part docuseries about the Supermodels before a printer. (laughs) Before we get into that, I just have to say, because you probably saw driving on Sunset Boulevard, the morning show billboards, because the morning show is back. I have not watched this show. I've only seen an episode here and there when I'm at my parents' house and they're watching the show. Do you know that Reese Witherspoon goes to space this season? <laughs> okay. No, I might have to start watching that again because I watched the whole first season and while it was very bad, I did get kind of into it. But then the second season was all about COVID and it came out like too soon. Like I was like, oh, I actually, I don't want this. But apparently in that season, Reese Witherspoon becomes a lesbian or bisexual or something. I think I might have to watch it from the beginning because Joel Kim Booster had a great tweet this week where he was like, I'm rewatching or I'm watching for the first time the morning show. And he's like, it's just amazing to be in the first season and look at Reese Witherspoon's character and go, she's going to go to space in two years. <laughs> I don't think you'll be able to handle that show, Lauren. If you couldn't handle and just like that, the morning show is beyond what you're capable of um, taking on emotionally. I don't stand Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston, so I have that distance. There's nothing that Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston can do to sully the experience for me. Right. Yes. Anyway, the Supermodel docuseries. Yeah, I really enjoyed watching it. There was so much incredible archival footage So many luminaries were interviewed. I feel like it took me back to the time where I first fell in love with fashion. And I don't know if I ever told you this, but when I was 12, I got six baby chicks because we always had chickens at my parents' house. Can you guess what I named them? Naomi, Cindy, Christy, Linda, Claudia, and Kate. Interesting you mentioned Claudia Schiffer because I noticed that was a name that was not mentioned at all. We saw her briefly here and there because you had to. She worked with them so frequently. And I don't know what the Claudia erasure is about because I always thought of her as being part of that group. But there's a lot of people that I also considered to be supermodels at the time. Stephanie Seymour, certainly, I always thought was a supermodel. I was just going to say Helena Christensen, but I was like, was that kind of the second wave that they talk about in the last episode? The Kate Moss, Shalom, Amber Valletta. Well, I think in the case of Stephanie Seymour and Helena Christensen, it's like they were more than models in the sense that they entered into pop culture. The Guns N' Roses music video, the Chris Isaac video. Yeah, guest campaigns. You know, Victoria's Secret Girls, which also was a big part of that. Who is the first supermodel? Janice Dickinson obviously considers herself the first supermodel. But that's because she claims to have coined the term. 
And if I'm incorrect, I'm sure many people will tell me. But yeah, of course there were big name models that I think were household names before these women. Like Twiggy was definitely a household name. What this documentary illustrates, and I believe it's Todd Oldham, great to see him after all these years, makes the point that yes, there were household names before these models, but they did print work. What makes Cindy, Naomi, Christie, and Linda different is that they were runway models who also did print, which I guess like actors in TV never being able to transition into movie acting is a similar division. That they did both in addition to that became household names. Yeah, well I also feel like a lot of their power was due to the fact that they were a group. If, I don't know, Verushka and Pat Cleveland and a bunch of those girls had all banded together and been like a girl squad, so to speak. And perhaps said that they wouldn't walk this runway show if Danielle Luna wasn't able to walk as well. We've known about this for years, but it was said in this docu-series that Christy and Linda stood up for Naomi Campbell because she wasn't getting booked as much as them, you know, due to racist casting practices of the times. And they were like, if you don't book her, you don't get us, which is really cool of them. I noticed Cindy was out of that conversation. (laughs) Okay, but I don't think that's because Cindy wasn't willing to put her neck on the line for Naomi so much as that Cindy was only doing runway for like a very set period of time. And then as they explain in this documentary, she went off to do much more commercial stuff that wasn't necessarily high fashion. So I think at a certain point, she wasn't in the same spaces as them. House of style notwithstanding. Which, this gets back to a point maybe we've made on the podcast, but we've certainly talked about a lot off of the podcast, which is the shit that we want from streaming services. You don't need to create new shows. I will pay more money to fucking Paramount Plus if you put the whole backlog of House of Style on that app. For sure. I know you have it. It was interesting, though, how they contrasted Cindy and how her career went with the other models, although it is kind of random because Naomi Campbell also tried to branch out in a lot of ways, which wasn't really explained in this documentary. She had a solo album called Baby Woman. Have you ever heard the music from it? No, I haven't. Do you want to play a clip here? We can play a clip of her lead single, Love and Tears. like George Michael Madonna energy but she can't sing god bless her but she also like she wrote a book she wrote a fictional novel she did stuff she was also on the cover of Playboy one of two things is clear to me from this documentary in order for these four women to participate in the documentary they had a huge say of how they were represented (laughs) yes or the producers didn't do good background research which i doubt that's what it is no no of course not look they they really did not address naomi campbell's controversies she was convicted of assault on four separate occasions which they kind of you you briefly see a headline about one of the assault charges and then she basically just says i was an addict i went to rehab which i have to say is maybe my favorite part of the documentary because the fourth part is very focused on like hey we're not just like 
piece of shit vapid models we do other stuff too and for naomi campbell they talk about her philanthropic work but also mark jacobs and john galliano who are talking heads and giving background on the girls in this documentary talk about how like naomi's a great person like she booked both of our rehab stays if i could get my car's gps to sound like john galliano i absolutely would they also didn't talk about Naomi's blood diamond scandal of 2010 when she like went on Oprah and like lied to her face and like had to go to court and stuff. That was also glossed over. And they didn't even really get into Linda that much. I think I learned more about Linda from the Sally Singer Vogue profile that came out in the September issue than I did in this film. I mean, obviously she hints at things. I was in an abusive relationship, stuff like that, but we don't really know what went down with her. And it didn't really get into the extent of her health issues or her son's health issues or the fact that she had a child with a billionaire who's now married to Salma Hayek. Their custody battle, like that whole thing was a big thing. There, there was just a lot of story that was left out of this. What I got out of this documentary, which I suppose is not the point, but I am so happy that I'm not beautiful. Same. I wish they got into that more because it's like, what happens when you are the most beautiful woman in the world and then you age? In the case of Naomi, she's been able to sustain it. Like death becomes her style, basically. Yeah. Chrissy Turlington has just let herself age. And is just the most naturally beautiful person in the world with the best personality is one of my big takeaways from watching this. Cindy Crawford, allegedly, just my opinion, um, has not gotten any Botox or fillers, but I think chose to get a lower facelift, which is an interesting choice of like, I'm going to do this invasive procedure, but not do any quote unquote non-invasive stuff. Yeah. And Linda has been plagued with health issues. Linda is kind of the Liza Minnelli of this docu-series because she is... She's the androgynous one. She's the gay adjacent one. And she's the one that's really been to hell and back. And we all stan her because of that. She's the one that's really had to deal with that the most because she was so overly identified with her appearance. And also because unlike the other three girls, she never branched out. She did not act. She did not start a company. She didn't do any of that shit. She wasn't discovered. She basically manifested this. This is all she ever wanted was to be... A model. I mean, the most heartbreaking part is you see Linda Evangelista getting chemo, but she goes on this whole monologue about how she's lost her looks, she's lost her livelihood. Look at Cindy, look at Christy, look at Naomi. They can continue to do this, but obviously I'm a monster. I can't. Like, it's very clear she has such body dysmorphia and that's not to take away the cool sculpting thing but she clearly cannot see herself the way how could you not be dysmorphic if your appearance has been scrutinized to the level that hers has of course she's been celebrated for her beauty for most of her life well but i think a very important thing i think you can be beautiful and have a healthy self-image about yourself but if you are married to that and that's how you derive your value because she does talk about i didn't I didn't think I was beautiful. I thought I was pretty. I thought I was thin. I thought I could pose, but I didn't think I was beautiful. And then you spend the next 15 years being told you're the most beautiful woman in the world. Well, it's crazy with Linda because especially after watching this, she really is the best model. Naomi might have the best runway walk, but in terms of modeling, I don't think anyone really comes close to Linda just because of her range. I mean, this woman, there is not one hairstyle 
that looks bad on this woman. It's like long blonde, great. Short and red, fine. Buzz cut, she'll probably look great. Like it's it's actually insane. She's she's the real Cindy Sherman of the supermodels. She's incredible and she could still model if she chose to. There are sort of two Todd Haynes, Gus Van Sant films within this docuseries. One is Linda Evangelista's slowly losing her own mind and not being able to to look in in the mirror almost this like but also that could be kind of like body horror oh, vibes for also. sure and then also this undercurrent of everyone now wanting to talk to cindy crawford even the hair and makeup people about kaya because the first thing that she says in this docuseries in the first episode when they're getting ready for the promo shoot is people say oh my god kaya you look so much like Kaya. And Cindy goes, no, Kaya looks like me. And I was like, whoa. (laughs) That shit's truly crazy. One weird thing about this documentary, though, they kind of acted like the Eastern European model craze of the early 2000s is what, or I guess the mid-2000s, is what ended the supermodel craze, as if there wasn't that rise of the sort of anti-supermodel, which was like the Aaron O'Connors, the Stella Tennant's, the Karen Elsons. And then after that, there was a whole new crop of supermodels. There was Giselle. There was Adriana Lima. I think Michael Moore has done such a disservice to docuseries and documentaries because it has a very clear perspective of what they want to tell because they act like there was never... Okay, no shade to Michael Moore, though. No shade to Michael Moore. I'm just saying the wrong lessons taken from his documentaries because they do not... You're right. They do not talk at all about how the late 90s into the early 2000s, there was a new supermodel craze. This documentary acts as if there were no name models after that. It's like Amber Valletta and Shalom Harlow hosted House of Style after Cindy Crawford. They made it seem like there were all these Eastern European girls that had like incredible work ethics and they all had uniform proportions and you could hire them for a fraction of the price of a supermodel. But what they weren't saying is that these girls like showed up on time. They didn't require a Concorde jet. They didn't require a suite at the Ritz. They weren't getting in an argument with the stylist about what they're wearing on the runway. They were just easier to work with. And people got over these big personalities. And the documentary makes it seem like these women, Cindy, Christy, Naomi, Linda, weren't booked on the runway or in magazines after 1996, which isn't true either. And with the exception of Linda, they kind of never really went away. I guess we haven't seen Christy that often. No, Christy's still doing those goddamn eternity campaigns. Can I tell you my favorite Christy Turlington fact? It's not covered in the documentary, but Christy Turlington married Ed Burns. That is covered in the documentary. But Christy Turlington's sister married Ed Burns' brother. Whoa. Yeah. So anyway, if you like the supermodels, if you like 90s fashion, watch that. It's fun. It's light. And of course, because this show has come out, the supermodels are doing a bunch of press to promote it, including this truly insane Vanity Fair cover. It's not American Vanity Fair. It's Italian Vanity Fair. And Italian Vanity Fair has assembled Naomi, Christy, Cindy, and a bunch of other girls into this truly deranged group photo. I mean, when I first saw this image, I thought it was shot by Annie Leibovitz, only for the fact that the Photoshop is so horrifying that it does not seem like any of these girls were in the same room together. Well, they 
definitely weren't in the same room together. It looks like one of those America's Next Top Model group shots. And I half expect like one of the women to just disappear out of the photo like they did when someone was eliminated. They all look good, but they're all in different photos is the problem. Like Cindy Crawford and Carla Bruni look like they're drunk. Claudia Schiffer looks like she's an entirely different shoot. Like mentally, she's in some Ellen Von Unworth dominatrix situation. They all look like they were caught in a wind turbine for one. The styling of Lauren Hutton contradicts everything that she stands for. She she actually looks like Kris Jenner. And I think the craziest thing about this cover is they put all of the older models on the third page of the gatefold cover, which is so fucking rude. Like, don't bother including them if you clearly have such little respect for them. So this crew is like Lauren Hutton, Penelope Tree, Twiggy, Pat Cleveland, Paulina Porzakova, who is in her 50s. Yeah. Did you notice this? Like, all of these women are in their mid-70s. Paulina Porzakova is the same age as like Cindy and Christy and all of them. But she has made the decision to like go gray naturally. So they've put her with all of these 70 year olds, which I feel like is really wild. Yeah, Penelope Tree looks like that image where you photoshopped our heads onto Balenciaga models <laughs> to promote the episode ones. I think Penelope Tree looks pretty major. I feel like they did Twiggy really dirty. They did Claudia Schiffer dirty with this. This is like me trying to do a high fashion pose. So I guess good on good on Linda for not participating. Also, I couldn't help but notice one thing. Did you notice that Naomi Campbell is the only person wearing a color? All of them are wearing Dolce & Gabbana, but Naomi is wearing like this red jeweled dress. And it made me think of seeing Naomi at the finale of the Vogue World fashion show where Cindy, Christy, and Linda were all in silver and she was in like green. Is she requiring that she's the one in color? Whatever. Anyway, guys, there's just so much to talk about this week. And this episode is running a little long for our liking. You know, we don't want to be like Joe Rogan and release a three-hour episode. No, we do not. So we're going to move our Milan Fashion Week discussion and the rest of the Kardashian segment to Apple subscriptions and Patreon. If you are not already a hot and rich fuckette, we would love to have you. Uh, and we'll be back next week. To talk about whatever fashion and pop culture bullshit may come our way. All right. We love you guys. Bye. Bye.